pleased. When I hear the story of Christmas or even think about the story of Christmas, these are the words that resonate. And I don't know why. I don't know why it's these words because we have a lot of text, especially in Luke chapter 2, about the incarnation of Jesus. But when I think about the story of Christmas, I think about glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And, and I got to imagine of all times in the history of humanity, this is the easiest time for us to say these words. When God becomes flesh, when Jesus is born, the Savior of the world comes to us, the promised Messiah is finally come to us. It is easier than ever to say these words. But if we're being honest, there's times in our lives that it's not so easy to say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Way back in the day when I was a sophomore in college, before I had this bald spot creeping up in the back of my head, uh, I decided to rush. And for those of you who don't know what rushing is, it doesn't mean making your life in a big hurry. What it means is you are looking to join a fraternity or a sorority or at Lubbock Christian University, what we call a social club. And so I was a sophomore, and I was trying to do this. And what you do over rush weekend is you commit, you clear your schedule, and you say, every single party I'm invited to, I'm going to go to. And so that weekend I did that. I was invited to this party run by a great group of guys. Um, it was a 1920s gangster casino theme. All right? It was awesome. You know those, you know those Christian parties. Right? I think they even served soda. It was bonkers. <laughs> Absolutely bonkers. So I went to the thrift shop, and I got this two-piece suit for $5. Incredible find. All right, it's black, had the white pinstripes, looking real nice. I had a gray fedora that I already wore way more often than I would like to admit. And I had silver reflective mirrored aviator sunglasses. And so I walked in looking the part, and so did so many other people. And they handed us a stack of poker chips and said, these poker chips don't mean anything. Just go have some fun. And we played some card games and roulette and all kinds of things. And during this party, at some point in that hour, we were taken back to a room to be interviewed by and to be able to interview the leaders of the club so we could get to know each other a little bit better. And I remember I walk into this room, and the door closes behind me, and it is pitch black. Like, I can't see anything. I'm doing one of those where I'm like shuffling my feet like this to make sure I don't stub my toe. I'm reaching out. I don't want to flatten my nose either. And I hear this voice tell me, take a seat in the chair. And I'm looking. I really am. But there's no chair. It's just darkness. And so I communicate that. I, I don't know what, what chair you're talking about. The chair right in front of you. Well, I, I don't feel it, I don't see it, and we're going back and forth, and they're getting frustrated, and I'm getting frustrated, and it feels like five minutes, it's probably been 30 seconds, but after a while, I finally realize I'm wearing sunglasses. <laughs> that shouldn't have been too hard, right? And it's not like it's super bright in the room, right? The lights were off, but there's a window, and the blinds were closed. But it's the middle of the day in, in West Texas, all right? There's lots of light coming through. I can clearly see there's one chair in the middle of the floor. I couldn't even get it confused with another chair. All the other chairs and desks are pushed back to the wall because it's a regular college classroom. I see three people, and I can even see the faces of these three people sitting behind a desk ready to ask me a couple of questions. And I just start laughing. I don't think it was as funny to them. <laughs> but I just start laughing because I realized I was looking through a lens of darkness, 
And as soon as I actually looked for the light, I was able to find it. And I'm sure we can get some sort of profound message out of this, and I'm sure our brains are already starting to try to connect the dots. But our preacher, Scott, who isn't here today, told me if no one's falling asleep, your sermon isn't over. And so I don't see anybody sleeping yet, so we just got to keep going. I'm sorry, we just got to keep going. Yeah, good try, good try to the fake snores out there. It was a good effort. For those of you who don't know, I'm Clark Sayer. I'm one of the kids' ministers here, and I'm excited to be in the Word with you today. And we are going to be in the Word. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, and we're going to talk about this theme called hope. And first, what we're going to read is from Zechariah 9, which is a, pro a minor prophet, one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament, often forgotten in our culture, I think. And it was known for a lot of messianic prophecies, which is a big word to say it's prophesying about the Messiah or the Christ, the one who is to come, the anointed one, who we know as Jesus. And so we're going to read in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and read one of those. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is one of those messianic prophecies, and it's a really cool one because this is one where we can see a clear story as to what this was prophesying. We see on what we call Palm Sunday during the triumphal entry, the week that we celebrate before Easter, uh, when Jesus rides on an unridden colt through the streets of Jerusalem and people throw palm branches and their coats down, kind of like to roll out a red carpet for him, right? We see this actually uh, physically and clearly made manifest in that. And so it's really cool for me to see. And when I think back to that story, I think back to what they were shouting. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And while Hosanna and glory to God don't mean quite the same thing, it seems very similar to me, at least, to what the angels were singing when Jesus was born. So let's keep reading in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. There's lots of war language here. But the chariot is going to be cut off. The war horse is going to be cut off. The battle bow is going to be cut off because there's going to be one that brings peace. Maybe peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. And God's people, the Israelites, knew suffering. They knew war. It was very much in their DNA. They had been through years and years and generations and generations of battles, of sufferings, of all kinds of trials and tribulations. But there is one that's going to bring peace, and that's the ultimate hope. That's the ultimate promise that the Israelites, God's people, looked forward to. The ultimate hope was this coming of a king who is going to bring peace, the Messiah. So let's keep reading in verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double it's interesting here because as he says, I'm going to set the prisoners free, he calls the free people prisoners. Almost as if to say, you are a prisoner, you just get to choose what you're a prisoner to. 
And if you're going to choose to be a prisoner of hope, you must have a stronghold. You must have a safe space, a fortress to which you can return. Return to it, prisoners of hope. And just before this, it talks about a blood covenant that he has with the people. Well, this is talking back to Abram, who is later named Abraham. And God makes this blood covenant with Abram to say, if you follow me, I'm going to make you a great nation. And out of you, all of the nations on the earth will be blessed. And I think I don't give Abram enough credit. Because I look around right here and I see a whole room of people that follow God. So big hairy deal that Abram did, right? Big whoop. It doesn't really matter. Everybody does. But what Abram did was so much crazier than what I think we might think on the surface. See, Abram left family. He left his father's household. He left inheritance. He left job security. In an honor and shame society, he left honor by not continuing his father's trade and his father's name. Uh, he left comfort. He left what other regional gods they may have had around. All because of a promise of a God that didn't even have this yet. Maybe he hadn't even seen proof that God is a promise keeper. And he leaves all of that on a promise that if you follow me, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, I am going to bless all nations of the earth. But after a while, after Abram does follow God, he starts to become a little impatient. And we see that in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, after, after Abram follows God, God hasn't quite followed through with the promise that he has given him yet. And so after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I don't, I don't know if it's just me, but shield and stronghold sound awfully similar. Stay by your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. I love what the author does here. Twice Abram speaks without allowing God to respond once. Showing us his impatience. Showing us what's going on. Look, God, I followed you, and now I have somebody else who's just part of my household, part of my entourage, who's going to be my heir, because I don't have what you promised me yet. And before God responds, and maybe it was a few seconds, maybe it was a few weeks, maybe it was a few years, we don't know. But before God even responds, he says again, a member of my house will be my heir. But God responds, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And in a display of confidence, God responds three times now before Abram is able to respond once and says, you must believe in me. 
Stay by your shield. Your reward shall be very great. It is coming. You shall receive your heir. And the greatest part about this story comes in verse 6. When Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abram chose to remain a prisoner of hope and returned to his stronghold. Abram chose not to look through dark lenses, but to seek out the light. And throughout the history of God's people, we see this happen over and over and over again. We see it happen in Abram's son, Isaac. We see it happen in Jacob's, and, and Isaac's son, Jacob, and Jacob's son, Joseph. And if you want to really know what it's like to be elevated and then have your knees cut out from, from under you over and over again and have to really choose to be a prisoner of hope and return to your stronghold, Read the story of Joseph, because that is all it is. It's him returning to his stronghold in the midst of trials. And in God's people, who were slaves in Egypt for nearly 400 years, who wandered in the desert for 40 years, who eventually made it to a promised land, but didn't drive out all the people. They went through these cycles of redemption. And these redemption cycles were so predictable and beautiful and sad all at the same time. See, Israel would follow Yahweh. They would follow God. And then after that, they would follow other gods, idols around the area. And they would worship the Baals and the Asherahs. And then because of that, they would be oppressed and conquered. And then when they're being oppressed, they would cry out to Yahweh and say, God, save us. And when God saves them, they say, glory to God. You saved us. How great is this? And they serve God until... They start worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs again. And then they get conquered and oppressed. And over and over and over, this happens. But each and every time God's people call on his name, when they return to their stronghold and remain a prisoner of hope, God pulls them through. Now, sometimes it, it takes generations. It's not always right now. Sometimes it takes a while. But we know when God's people call on him, when they re we return to our stronghold, when we remain prisoners of hope, he pulls us through. And the ultimate hope for God's people was that that promise, that blood covenant that God gave to Abram would be fulfilled. That through him, through them, this great nation of Israel would come something that would bless all of the nations of the world. And at Christmas time, when the Savior is born, when the Messiah becomes flesh, that hope is made manifest. All of that hoping through all of the suffering and all of the trials, all of it was worth it because God kept his promise. And when, when the people returned to their stronghold and remained prisoners of that hope, God pulled them through and gave them what he promised. And when Jesus was born and that hope was made manifest and he became the Messiah, he showed it over and over and over in his life. He blessed nations and blessed people all throughout his life. In fact, he blessed the lives of two people in Mark chapter 5 in a way that I don't even think I can comprehend. In Mark chapter 5, verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Now, real quick, and Mark uses this as a theme, and this is beautiful to talk about the fulfillment of that hope. Jesus goes back and forth across the Sea of Galilee from the Jewish side 
to the Gentile side, to the Jewish side, to the Gentile side, literally blessing all nations, right? And so as he's blessing all nations, a great crowd gathers about him because he's popular and people want to be around him. And they want healings and they want teachings and they want to be witnesses. So then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. I want you to imagine the urgency of Jairus here, whose daughter is literally on her deathbed. As he comes and fights through this great crowd to get to Jesus and throws himself at Jesus' feet and implores him earnestly, please, my daughter's dying. Come lay hands on her so that she can be made well. Because Jairus chose Jesus as his stronghold. And despite his daughter, maybe being in her last breaths on this earth, chose to remain a prisoner of hope. So Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This woman had been sick for 12 years, and she exhausted all of her resource, spent everything she had on doctors, physicians, medicine, trying to get better. And not only did she not get better, she just kept getting worse for 12 years. And what does she say? If I touch just his clothes, I will be made well. She makes her stronghold Jesus and remains a prisoner of hope. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, who touched me? But he looked around to see who had done it. And I can't help but notice Jairus here. I can't help but notice a man desperate for Jesus to fight the crowds, and it's already probably slow going to get to his house, and wanting Jesus, please come lay hands on my daughter before it's too late. I need you to come and heal my daughter in desperate hope. And Jesus takes time to figure out who touched him in a large crowd. I got to imagine, Jairus is thinking, dude, come on, man. <laughs> Let's go. But Jesus says it's important for me to address everybody, and it's not just about you. And he turns around and he wants to know who touched me. So the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. As, as Jairus is hoping for his daughter to be healed 
of, a, of something that is killing her. This woman who has a disease where the blood is leaving her body, her life is going out of her, he calls her daughter and heals her with just a touch of his garments. And it's such a beautiful story for this woman. And it's such a beautifully well-written story in the book of Mark. One of the many reasons Mark is my favorite gospel. For more, hit me later. But it's so beautiful for her. But for Jairus, it was too little too late. Because while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? It's a popular guy. He's got more people to heal. He's got bigger problems than yours. He's got more people to teach, more people to show who he is. It's too late for your hope now. But Jesus responds in a surprising way. But overhearing, and some scripts say, but ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Come back here, Jairus. Return to your stronghold, Jairus. Remain a prisoner of hope, Jairus. Believe. Look back through the history of Israel. What happened? When they called on my name, I brought them through. What happened with Abram? When he was doubting God and becoming impatient and saying somebody else is going to be my heir, he returned to his stronghold. He stayed by his shield and he believed and God counted it as righteousness. Come back to your stronghold, Jairus. Believe in me. And here's, I have a problem with the way that we use hope in our language. Okay, the way we use hope has this idea of wishful thinking, right? This idea that it's like this optimism. Like, I hope that my son will one day be a multimillionaire and buy me a nice retirement home, okay? That's not hope. That's wish, right? And in our language, we interchange those way too often. But when we look in the Hebrew and when we look in the Greek, the word hope in Hebrew, it's tikvah. And I can't even read Hebrew. I just put it up there because I thought it looked cool. But it's tikvah. And it's the same word as it is in the Greek. And in the Greek, it's elpis. And these are the words in the Bible that describe hope. And these hope, this hope is not some wishful thinking, some I wish that something may happen one day. It's an expectation. Literally, its word is hope, expectation. So when we hope in God, when we believe in God, when we have faith that's good enough to make us well as the woman who was bleeding did, we expect the power of God to be enough. Not something we wish for, but something we know. Abram believed him. It was the woman's faith who made her well. And here God, Jesus is asking Jairus to believe. Have hope. Expect it. So we keep reading. Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. And Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping, people wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. But of all times, of all times to cause a commotion, of all times to be weeping and wailing, wouldn't it be when a young woman dies? Shouldn't that be the pinnacle of commotion and weeping and wailing? That's the right time. That's the most appropriate time. Unless you're a prisoner of hope. 
unless you have the faith of the woman who was healed, unless you believe as Abram did. So they laughed at him. But Jesus put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Just as Jesus heals a woman whom he calls daughter, who's been sick for 12 years because of her faith, and she throws herself down at Jesus' feet. Now he heals the daughter of Jairus, who's 12 years old, whose life is not only leaving her, but has actually left her. When Jairus put his hope in Jesus and made Jesus his stronghold, when Jairus fell down at Jesus' feet, and he resurrects this young lady in a beautiful, beautiful story to tell us what it is to hope. Not to wish, but to expect. But God doesn't always do it like this, does he? That's what makes it so difficult for me. God doesn't always step, in, step into our suffering and fix it right away. He doesn't always do exactly what he did for Jairus. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed for the life of a loved one and seen no change and seen someone pass away anyway. And I can't tell you how many times I felt disappointed by God or in the dark because I wasn't looking for the light. But hoping is different. Sometimes it takes generations. Sometimes it's not right now. And that's hard for me to say because in those times when it's hardest to say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. That's when we must have the most expectation, the most hope. I don't know where each of you are or what each of you has been through. I don't know everybody's story in here. I don't know if you've been through depression. It's, I have. It's not easy. I feel like I'm on the other side of it most days. But there are days that are darker than others that make it harder and harder to scream out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom we are pleased. There are days when it's harder to realize we're looking through a lens of darkness and seek out the light. But it's in those days we must hope and we must expect that God is going to make all things right with us. I don't know if you've been through a miscarriage where you felt like something was robbed from you. And you felt like you had something and it was taken away. And it's in that time it's hardest to sing those words. But it's in that time you must hope and expect that God is going to pull you through. I don't know if you've, what level of loved one you've lost. If it's been a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a child or a grandchild. I don't know. But in those moments when it's hardest to say it is the moment it's most important to fall at Jesus' feet and say, I believe and expect that he is going to pull you through. No matter what darkness it is that you're going through, you have to look for the light. 
And it's the great hope, the great expectation. As it was for God's people in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come, it is now ours that he will come again. It is not something we wish for. It is something we know. It is something we hope for. It is something we expect. And when he comes and he takes away all of the pain, when he takes away all of the suffering, all of the heartache, all of the turmoil, it will be a thing of the past. And we will be in perfect community with our stronghold. We will be reunited with loved ones. We will be in a utopia that is immune from all of the struggles of life. And we will because we expect it, because we have hope. And when Jesus comes... When that day comes and he reunites us with him and he makes all things right, it will be easier than ever to shout from the highest mountain, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Return to your stronghold, prisoners of hope. Expect that he will bring us through. Let's pray. We confess, God, that you are our stronghold. And God, we hope in you. As you've proven over and over in the history of your people, we expect that you will bring us through our trials, through our sufferings, through our hardships. And we expect that you will return, that we will be reunited with you, that everything will be perfect, and that all of the heartache will be a thing of the past. We fall at your feet. We call you our stronghold. We remain prisoners of hope. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.